Well, in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it's the favorite chapter. Uh, it's almost at all Christian weddings, something out of 1 Corinthians 13, 13, will, or out of 1 Corinthians 13 will be in the love chapter. It says, and these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Those three, faith, hope, and love, uh, they are the powerhouses of God that we need to be operating in our lives. Faith, hope, and love changes our lives and changes the world around us. Can you imagine a life in a world with no hope, no faith, no love? It'd be an awful existence. And so they're incredibly important in our lives. And they should be talked about often. It's been a while since we've talked about some of these things. The love we seem to hit on quite a bit, and rightfully so. And Because the greatest of these is love. So how are we going to learn and develop in the things of God? It's by studying these kind of topics. These three things need to always be on our agenda rotation list to learn, to grow in, to advance in to get better at. All those things are very important, but it takes us being good hearers and good doers because we need to apply the Word of God, not just hear the Word of God. So we want to do that. And Galatians says this in Galatians 5, 6, and it makes the topic really powerful. Excuse me, I want to I mention this beforehand. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, these three remain faith, hope, and love, but it doesn't mean there's nothing else important. I mean, is joy important? Sure. Is peace important? Absolutely. If we went to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, and read the opening verses, it would say, it would say things like, it's mentioned in there, speaking in tongues, prophesying, mountain-moving faith, generous and sacrificial giving, self-denial. It mentions all those things. Now, is God saying, well, faith, hope, and love is the only thing that really matters, and love is the greatest, and the rest of the stuff, we don't need any of that? It doesn't say that. It just says that any time we're not operating in faith, hope, and love, our life gets diminished, and the world around us gets diminished. Those are three things, and love is critical. It is the igniter of all these tremendous attributes of God, love is. And so in Galatians 5, 6, it says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Now, I want to pause for a second. A guy named Paul who wrote... More books of the New Testament are Christian scriptures than anybody else is writing this. Paul was incredibly Jewish. He was steeped in Judaism. He was an instructor. He was taught by the best of the best. He was zealous. He, was, he goes through his pedigree, his Jewish pedigree, and it's pretty impressive. And so he would totally understand Jewish rule and regulations. He went to often Gentile places, although he also preached in synagogues everywhere too, and in this city of Galatia, he established a church, and he taught them what it takes to be born again. Now, if you read Galatians and pay attention to chapter 1 and 2, you'll find out that Paul was taught about the gospel and about salvation by the resurrected Jesus. Okay? By the resurrected Jesus. He didn't confer with anyone, it says, and he went and preached. He preached for several years this gospel message that was taught to him by the resurrected Jesus. And so after he left Galatia, there were some people that came around and said, hey guys, you gave your hearts to Jesus. That's amazing. That's awesome. That's wonderful. But I want to tell you something else you need to do. You need Jesus and, and just about any time you hear Jesus and, there's going to be a problem. You, you 
need Jesus and you need to obey Jewish rules, regulations, rituals, and all kinds of things. Well, trust me, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, was a Jew of the Jews. If he thought that was necessary, he would have taught it. So they said things. This is why we need to know our Bible. They said things like, and so today when we hear this, we got the whole completed scripture. We got the Christian scriptures as well as the Hebrew scriptures. These people didn't have that. But they said, man, if you even go back and check out uh, the Hebrew Bible, you'll find out that the sign of the covenant, the sign that you have come into a relationship with God is circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh and the shedding of blood. Guess whose flesh was broken for us and whose blood was shed? Jesus. Jesus. And so Paul just says, oh, my goodness. And he comes to these Galatians and he said, you're running such a good race. Who cut in on you? Who tripped you up? He said, who did this? And uh, he also says the very harsh words about them. And then he goes on to say this. Let me ask this question. Now catch this. This is a a non-Jewish church, a Gentile church that's been planted by Paul. He said, let me ask this question. Did God pour out his Holy Spirit among you? So is it fair to say that the Holy Spirit's been poured out upon the church in Galatia? Did God pour out his Holy Spirit upon you and work miracles among you? So this is... This is a happening church. The Holy Spirit's poured out. Miracles are happening. It's firing on all cylinders. Did God do this because you obeyed Jewish law? Or because, listen to this, you believed what you heard? Believed what you heard. We're not going to talk about this week, but I'll mention it because just in passing. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So did, did some Jewish ritual give you an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and miracles? Well, the answer is no. Well, what did then? We believed what we heard, that Jesus was the Savior and that we needed him, and we gave our lives to him, and we got empowered by the Spirit. So it says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts... Now, that's a strong line. The only thing that counts is what? Faith. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The King James says, faith that worketh by love. Love's the catalyst, and faith is the thing that matters. So we're going to talk about the power of faith. It's a big deal. I mean, when you hear the only thing that matters is faith that works by love, that ought to get our attention. Hebrews 11.6 ought to get our attention. And without faith, it is, what's the next word? Impossible. And without faith is impossible. Impossible to do what? Please God. Without faith is impossible to please God. Without faith is impossible to please God. Without faith is impossible to please God. Why? Because... Anyone who comes to God must believe he exists, must have faith. You often see faith and belief, you know, mingled in the same verses because they're, they're so connected. You've got to believe that God exists. So if an atheist says, I don't believe there is a God, I think God's a fairy tale. Is that person going to, he or she, going to cry out to God for salvation? No, because they don't believe that God exists. And here's good news, too that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So this is hugely important. Maybe that's why God said, 
these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Faith works by love. When you don't have faith, when you don't have belief in something, then things become impossible. Impossible. There's a story you may have heard. It's, it's morphed into an urban legend, but it actually is a true story. And uh, I'm going to give you a more accurate account of it because this, the guy who did this was interviewed in a magazine, and I'm going to tell you what he said. In 1939, George Dantzing was pursuing his doctoral, his doctorate degree, his PhD in mathematics. And he came into class. So, he, I mean, he's got a lot of schooling, obviously, because you're working on your doctorate. So he's been in school for years. He came to the class late. And when he got there, he looked up on the board, and there were two problems on the board that he assumed were homework assignments. So he jotted them down. Class was over. He went back to work and study and all those things. And a few days later, he brought in the papers to his professor, which is Neiman, Professor Neiman. And he said, hey, Professor, I'm sorry. It took me so long to get these to you. But he said, will you still accept them? And he said, yes. He said, just throw them on my desk. George said he looked at that desk covered by paper from top to bottom. He thought, he's never going to find these again. So he threw them down. And didn't think much about it. Till six weeks later, on a Sunday morning at 8 a.m., George and his wife Anne are awakened by a furious knock on the door. Sunday morning again at 8 a.m., they go to the door, and it's Professor Neiman, or Naaman, and it's not common the professor comes by to your house, especially not 8 a.m. on Sunday morning. He's all excited. He's waving papers. He said, George, I just wrote an introduction to this. I need you to read it because we're going to get this published. He had no idea what he's talking about. And so they began to talk, and what he figured out as they began to talk was the two problems on the board, because he wasn't there early enough to learn this, were unsolvable statistical problems that, well, at least no one had solved them at this point. I bet he thanks the Lord that he was uh, not there to learn that. Because you know what happens when we have faith in the impossible? It becomes impossible. And I know what I probably would have thought was, well, my goodness, if these have not been solved by the greatest minds in mathematics, then it's not going to be solved by me. He actually solved both of them. They were, he created a, a theorem that made these statistical patterns, well, they were possible, but no one could figure out how. He figured it out. Because he didn't know, he couldn't do it. And he did it. Isn't that amazing? We need faith. We need hope. We need belief. What I want to share as we move into this topic on faith is not something I really like to share because I want to build faith, not diminish faith. But I believe we have to grow up and learn how to grow in faith as well as grow in love and grow in hope and grow in any other thing the Bible teaches. What I want to say, which is we all know this, it's always the elephant in the room when you're talking about faith, is that myself, you, every one of us here, we have done our best to apply our faith, our prayers. We've prayed our best prayers. We've made our best confessions. We've quoted our best scriptures. We've done everything we need to do, and it seemingly failed. And so if we're not careful, we say, well, nobody around here has got it done. Well, I guess I can't get it done either, so I'm just not even going to learn or grow in faith. But that's, that's immature thinking. That's not mature thinking. Because the truth is, on any topic in the Christian world, we have failed. Is it fair to say 
that I don't even have to ask for a show of hands. Who here has not always loved like Jesus loved? Yeah, we've all failed at that. Do we ever say, well, I'm not even going to learn or try to grow in love anymore? Who, who, hasn't, who has lacked peace at times when they knew God provides peace? Who has, who has lacked self-control? None of us here, of course, but other people might have. Where you, you knew you shouldn't do something, but you went ahead and did it anyway. Do we ever say, you know what, I'm not going to study I'm not going to study self-control, I'm not going to study love, I'm not going to study peace, I'm not going to study faith, because we've all failed at all that. What we do as mature people is we grow. We grow. Great analogies are just all around us. Your education, your, your, if you've learned to play a musical instrument, or you've played a sport, or you've done anything, or learned a language, it was full of failure, and it's still full of failure. But somebody quoted this one time, it really it makes sense to me. What we have to do is we have to fail forward. So you're learning to a sport, and you fail, but you keep developing a little skill as you fail, and a little more skill as you fail, and a little more skill as you fail, and you keep moving forward. You're failing forward. You're not taking one step back forward and three back. You're taking three forward and one back, and two forward and one back, but you keep, keep moving forward, learning a language, playing a sport, an instrument, whatever you've done in life, you've done that. That's been our process for anything, and it's our process spiritually. But the devil doesn't want you to know that. It just assumes you quit and give up, but we're going to move forward. So don't be discouraged. We're followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus grow. We develop. We move forward. We, we learn. We apply on any teaching found in the Scripture. But this topic of faith can be a source of discouragement, or a source of shame for people because I tried, it didn't work. Okay, you know, that's okay. Let's get up, dust ourselves off, and go on. I think it's the Proverbs that says a righteous person falls seven times, but what? guess what? They rise again. They get back up, and they keep moving forward. They refuse to quit. So we're going to look at a discouraging moment in the disciples' lives. We're going to see how the disciples handled it, and we're going to see how Jesus handled it. Matthew 17. In Matthew 17, starting at verse 14, it says, When they came to the crowd, it was Jesus and his disciples, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son. He said, He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Now, I want to stop there because just logically speaking, how does he know the disciples couldn't heal his son? The only logical answer is they tried and they did not succeed. Now, Jesus is a rabbi, a teacher. They are disciples or students. And so we have to assume, knowing any teacher and student or rabbi and student, that Jesus taught them and he modeled for them. They'd seen Jesus do all kinds of signs, wonders, and miracles. And I'm going to assume, and I think it's a fair assumption, that they tried to do whatever Jesus did. And they didn't succeed. And so it says they failed. Well, there's a Jesus that's taught in the culture, and it's always been taught. This Jesus is a Jesus who never corrects. He never condemns. He never has a problem with anything. 
He never, he never would, would chide someone or, or tell them you did that wrong. He just, he's just a big, fluffy marshmallow of love and just whatever, what, you just do you and Jesus is all happy with it. But that's what's taught. So this is a good point for Jesus to be our happy, loving, marshmallow Jesus. But I want you to see what Jesus does. But they could not heal him. The first words out of Jesus' mouth is a rebuke. And, in my opinion, so you can take it or leave it because it doesn't actually say this, it appears to me that Jesus is somewhat exasperated by the situation. So he starts out not with words like, hey, that's okay, you know, we all try to do our best and don't worry about it. No, he starts out with these words. You unbelieving and perverse generation. You faithless and perverse generation. How long shall I put up with you? How long shall I be with you? And then this is where I, I picture him being exasperated. Like, bring the boy to me. You know, come on, bring him over here. We'll take care of this. That's just me. The storyline doesn't actually say it, but it's just how I picture the whole event. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Now, just a little side note. Sometimes physical ailments are demonic in nature. Sometimes they're just physical ailments. You see Jesus heal all kinds of people with leprosy, and I don't think it's ever mentioned that he cast out a demon of leprosy. But if you look at the parallel story of this, I think it's in Mark 4, Mark 4, Mark 9. If you look at the parallel story, it says he cast out a mute and deaf spirit. And so, good time for discerning of spirits to know, is this physical or is this spiritual? Then the disciples came to Jesus, their learners, they came to Jesus in private. Because they knew if they asked him publicly, he would tell them publicly. So in private, they say, hey, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, because you have so little what? Faith. Because you have so little faith. So, if you and I are here today with so little faith, then it is what it is, but let's move forward. Let's grow. The mustard seed's always used as an example of faith. It's one of the smallest of all seeds, but when it's planted and you give it time to grow, it becomes the largest of all the garden herbs. Interesting. So, he says, you couldn't because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Wow. Let that sink in because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is from the lips of Jesus. Now, if you want to be a person of faith, if you believe faith can move mountains, if you don't, we need to read the verse again. Jesus said it could. If you believe faith can heal the sick, cast out demons. If you believe faith can do miraculous, wonderful things, and you say to yourself, you know what? Nothing less than a faith-filled life will do for me. Then beware. Because a lot of people get scared about the devil. I, I just refuse to get scared about the devil. I mean, he's kind of scary, but he, I refuse to get scared by him because we have a great big God, and he's a little bitty devil. 
And so anytime somebody comes to me with a theory that makes the devil big and God little, I want to reject it immediately. Our God is big. Our God is big. More, more so than we can even understand. And so here Jesus is teaching them. And we need to receive that. But somebody will come up to you someday and say, you need to back it down a little off the faith stuff. You need to, I mean, after all, faith can't do everything. Well, Jesus said, nothing's impossible to you if you have faith. Now, again, we could say, well, has everything worked for you? I've already told you everything hasn't worked for me. But I'm not going to let that stop me. I'm going to go forward. I've learned a lot of things in my life. And every time I started anything for the first time, it was ugly. When Sean was 13, I took him, uh, he and I went up to Michigan, and we went snowboarding. It was ugly. I went surfing. I was so thrilled. They had a video of me surfing and still shots of me surfing. The video didn't work. The still shot looks like I know what I'm doing because you can't see the whole process. So it's ugly. Anything you do, it can be, it is ugly at first, but you keep failing forward. You keep failing forward. You keep failing forward. So I, I just want to curse shame or discouragement or, or I'm going to quit. No, we're going to keep growing. We're going to keep growing in the Lord. Here's these disciples and they failed. What did they do? They asked, why did I fail? Jesus answered, here's why you failed. And they said, we better go to work on this. And one day, those, two of those disciples stopped by a man who was born lame and said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the guy did it. He rose up and walked. The same two guys who said, why couldn't we heal or cast this demon out of that uh, little boy? Because you're faithless and unbelieving. Something happened. They kept asking questions. They kept watching Jesus. They kept growing. They kept growing and kept growing. Now let's ponder this for a moment. Don't we teach people that as Jesus followers, we ought to act like Jesus? But if they know where I'm going with this, they'll interrupt and say, oh, hold on, hold on. Um, we need to be like Jesus as it pertains to love and compassion and kindness, and forgiveness. I say yes and amen to all that. But I want to ask a question. Was Jesus a person of faith? Did Jesus have radical faith? Jesus lived in faith. Let me tell you what else he did. He died in faith. He died knowing that I will rise again. In faith, he gave up his life and died. Was he over the top with his faith? Seems like it to me. He goes to Lazarus' graveside, and Mary and Martha said, because their faith only went so far, and I get it. I mean, I, I get it. They said, if you had only been here, he would have survived, but you weren't here. Now, is that going to stop Jesus? Apparently not. <laughs> he says, here's, I got an idea. Let's roll the stone away. Now, they weren't real motivated because they said this, wow, he's been dead four days. What you are about to smell is not going to be pleasant. A four-day decaying body in a tomb. And he rolls a stone away. And he says a prayer to the Father, 
And he says this, I'm only praying this prayer so that everyone around here will know where my source is. I'm praying this prayer to you, Father. I mean, we know each other and we know what's going on, but I want to make sure everybody around here doesn't say, wow, Jesus is so good just on his own. I want them to know that we're connected. And after he says that prayer, so everybody knows specifically that Jesus is talking to the Father, to, to who the Hebrews would have called Yahweh, he's talking to him. Then he just makes a command. Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? He came forth. He came forth. He came out of the grave. Wow. So, should we love like Jesus loves? Yeah. Forgive like Jesus? Yeah. Should we have compassion like Jesus? Yeah. Just as I say those words out of my mouth, I think how many times I've not done that. But I want you to know, I have had times where I have done it. And so I want to keep moving forward. So we ask ourselves a question, how did Jesus do these crazy things? He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he walked on water, he fed thousands of people with a little bit of food, he, he did all kinds of crazy, wonderful, amazing signs, wonders, and miracles. How did he do that? Well, the standard answer is, people say, duh, Tracy, how long you been at this thing? It's obvious. He did that because he's the one and only begotten of the Father. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. That's how he did it. Well, let's examine some scriptures because that sounds like a real great answer, but I do want to tell you up front, it's a wrong answer. <gasps> what? But I've told people that. I probably told people that too. But I decided, let's see what the Bible says. I know it's crazy, isn't it? It's just a crazy idea. Let's just see what the Bible says. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. You must have the same attitude, the same mind that Jesus Christ had. Though he was what? Though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to or grasp at or hold on to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He gave up his godness. Now, I want to make this plain because this could really go crazy. No one stole it from him. He didn't lose it. He willingly laid it down. Just like when he died. He said, no one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. So he willingly laid it down. <clears throat> he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to whom? To God. And died a criminal's death on the cross. Now, it's foreign for us to say, but Jesus laid aside his privilege, his, well, that's what the Bible says. And let me tell you why I know you really know that if you think it through. Could we today capture God and murder him? No. Well, then how did we capture Jesus and put him on a cross? Because he laid aside his deity in that respect. He was killable. God's not killable. Did you ever read that Jesus got hungry and thirsty and tired and weary? He had to take baths, get his feet washed, do stuff like that. Had to work a job. Do, do you picture God? Is God tired today? Is God 
man, I'm so hungry. I hope Tracy hurries up and shuts up because, man, I got to get out of here. I'm so hungry. No, he's, that's what you all might be thinking. But God's not, he's not hungry. He's not thirsty. He's not tired. He's not weary. He's not any of those. Jesus experienced that because he laid aside his divine privilege. He laid aside his divine privilege. Otherwise, he could have never died for us. It would have been impossible to kill him. Does God bleed? No. He had to wrap himself in a human body. Well, it just gets more crazy. This Bible, man, it'll ruin more of our thoughts and give us some good ones. Acts 10, 37 and 38. Peter's going to a Gentile's house, which was he wasn't real excited about, uh, but the Lord told him to. And I'm telling you, from what I read, that's the only thing that got him to do it. This guy named Cornelius was a Gentile. He had a heart after God, was a generous person, was a giver, and he had an encounter, an angelic encounter, and he was told to call for this guy named Peter. And Peter would come and tell him the scoop on Jesus and on salvation. And he was very aware of Jesus, his ministry, and everything that was going on. And so Peter gets there at Cornelius' house, and he starts out by saying, you know what happened, because they did. Cornelius was on top of what was going on in his region. You know what happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning, starting in Galilee after the what? The baptism that John preached, which is water baptism, what we did today, what, what Paige did and what we celebrated with Paige. So it started after the water baptism, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Don't miss that phrase because Jesus of Nazareth is a very earthly human term. He didn't say how God anointed his one and only begotten, the Savior, the Messiah of the world. He uses very specific human terms, Jesus of Nazareth. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the what? Holy Spirit, and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Everything about Jesus' ministry on earth is he's connecting to the Father. He's operating under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. Even when Peter decides he's going to fight for him, Jesus says, hold on, do you not think that I could call the Father? And he would send, I think it's 12 legions. He had sent 12 legions of angels to rescue me. There's always this connection with the Father. And so Jesus is water baptized. The Father pours out the Holy Spirit and power on Jesus. And then he goes about doing good, healing all who are sick and oppressed of the devil. Now, it's a dangerous thing, but if you'll read the Bible in Acts chapter 1, you will find out that the resurrected Jesus told these folks, hey, don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the gift the Father has promised. For you shall receive, does anybody remember? Power, after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Isn't that what happened to Jesus? Hmm. Wow, okay, so Jesus is operating under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the power of God because God is with him. How are we supposed to operate? 
saying. You, you, maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you've heard it so many times you can preach it for me. But if you've never heard it before, it's okay for you to go, I don't know about that. Well, then do what the Bereans did. Go check the scriptures and see what they say. And if you check the scripture, now, I said check the scripture. I didn't say, I'm going to talk to Uncle Joe. He knows the Bible pretty well, and we'll see what he thinks about this crazy teaching that Jesus operated under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and power connected to the Father, and not that he was the Messiah of the world. Was Jesus the Messiah and Savior of the world? Absolutely. Was he God in human flesh? Absolutely. I'm not trying to take any of that away from you. I'm just saying that Jesus said, I laid aside my divine privilege and I operated in communion with the Father under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the power that he gives. That's what the Bible teaches. Now here's the problem. We can picture Jesus doing this, but you and I are just regular old folk. We're just regular old folk. I mean, how's God going to use regular old folk? I don't know, but you know what they often said about the followers of Jesus? This is how they would say it. Why? How are they doing this? They're just regular old folk. These are the men that turned the world upside down. How are they doing that? They're ignorant, unlearned men from Galilee. They haven't been trained at the finest universities. Now, Paul was, but the, the disciples weren't that they were talking about. How, how are they doing this? Ah, but they perceived they had been with whom? Jesus. They got trained by Jesus. They saw what happened to Jesus. That's why Peter said as an eyewitness, you all know this because you've been keeping an eye on Jesus too. It all began. You know what happened in the province of Judea at the beginning with John's baptism, how God poured out the Holy Spirit and power upon Jesus, and then he went about doing good, healing all who were sick and oppressed of the devil. Wow. But you and I are just ordinary people. How's this going to happen? Because we have an extraordinary God. Now we think, I, I surely have to achieve some level in order for me to do this. You need the Holy Spirit and power. That's your level. The Holy Spirit and power. Yeah, but I need to, no, Holy Spirit and power. That's it. I, I, I was at a small group, Darlene and I were. We had small groups years ago, and we do them on occasion. And we were at a host home. And the, as we were wrapping up, the host home husband said, he, he loved the Lord. He said, Trace, would you pray? He said, pray very specifically. He said, I, it was either a nephew or a cousin that was in prison. And he called his grandma like twice a week, every week, like clockwork. And she hadn't heard from him for weeks. So she was concerned and lacking peace and tore up. And so he said, would you pray that he would call his grandmother so she could have some peace? And I said, sure. And my prayer was sounded about this powerful. Lord, I pray for this young man. I ask you, move upon his heart. And just something triggering him that he'll just call his grandma and put her heart at rest. And then I said a prayer of dismissal, and that was it. The following week, we get together. And the guy says, I got a confession and a testimony. He said, confession first. Last week, I asked Tracy to pray for my family member to call his grandma. And when he prayed, I'm being honest with you, what went through my mind was, I bet that prayer moved God. There wasn't any enthusiasm, any power, any volume. And by the way, I have no problem with enthusiasm and volume and power. It doesn't, doesn't bother me at all. 
And in fact, you can get a little, little emotional charge from that, and I'm all for that, but it has to go past that, okay? That, by the way, doesn't hinder it, but it has to go past that. And his circles were, I mean, his circles would pray like, Father God, in the name of Jesus, I bind that foul spirit that's keeping him from calling his grandma. Father, I pray he get, you know, it would be one of those prayers. And then he would have went, ah, oh, I, I truly, sincerely mean, I'm not opposed to that kind of praying at all. In fact, I kind of like when people pray for me like that. But that wasn't the way I prayed. He said, that's my confession, my testimony. He called his grandma the next day. What happened? See, it's prayer and faith. And honestly, I'm not setting myself up as a poster child either. I just want to know it's prayer and faith. The parallel story to what we read about Jesus and the disciples is in Mark, and they said, how be it this kind cometh not out but by prayer and fasting, this demon. And I've seen people take that and miss what Jesus specifically said, you lacked faith. And they say, oh, it had to be prayer and fasting. It wasn't prayer and fasting, you lacked faith. Now, we might be able to say, Prayer and fasting may create an atmosphere for us to receive the word well to grow, but, but the bottom line is it's faith. There's not a demon around here is concerned that you went without food for three days. It doesn't bother them at all. In fact, they'll encourage you to do it for a year until you fall over dead. There's not a demon that cares if you pray because you can pray a lot of wrong ways. Like what? When you pray, do not pray just to be seen to people. That's the wrong way. When you pray, don't pray amiss that you're just praying for things to spend it on your own lusts. Don't be like the pagans when you pray because they think they will be heard by their much speaking. So they want to pray really, 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 really long prayers because they believe their God requires that. Our God doesn't. In fact, if you watch Jesus' prayers, most of which are not prayers, seriously, they're not prayers, they're commands. When he got done praying at Lazarus' tomb, just so other people could know what was going on, here was the power. Lazarus, come forth. Winds and waves, peace be still. Well, it sounds like there's an argument to be made for three-word commands, and he commanded so I want to encourage you, God can use regular people who pray just regular prayers in regular tones of voice, in regular places like the grocery store, and in the neighborhood, and everywhere, because God wants to use me and you. You think, well, what if I pray and nothing happens? Who cares? Do it anyway. I know we care. Of course we care. But do it anyway. You know, there's a, 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 a saying in basketball, you miss every shot you don't take. Hmm. Every shot you don't take, you're guaranteed not to score. Guaranteed. So throw something up there. Who knows? Something, something may happen. And then we keep growing in our faith and growing in our faith, and we keep practicing and practicing. One thing I do know the devil and demons hate, faith. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this. Is there any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And the prayer of faith. Other translations say it like this. The prayer prayed in faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. 
That's what it says. But it's a prayer in faith. It's not just prayer. Now, it's statistically proven that a high percentage of people feel better emotionally when they receive prayer, even if they don't get what they were praying for. So why not pray? Worst thing that happened is they'll probably walk away and say, I feel just as sick as I did before they prayed, but boy, they're nice people. And that felt good to get prayed for. But we want to go past that, don't we? We want to go past that. We want God to heal and deliver and set free and save and do all the wonderful things that Jesus did. So here's our week's focus. Reject any wrong beliefs about Jesus' ministry of faith. That is why you see him exasperated with his disciples and his followers when they don't operate in faith and get results. Otherwise, I'm serious, he would teach them because he is a rabbi you can't do this. This is son of God, savior of the world things. Quit trying to do this. Quit trying to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. It's not for you. But ordinary people, God sent them out. And 70 people came back with joy and said, oh my goodness, even demons are subject to us in your name. Ordinary people. It's almost like no one is more shocked than them that something actually happened. So let's go do it. So reject any wrong beliefs about Jesus' ministry of faith. And two, embrace the truth. Embrace the truth that you too, by faith, can operate in the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit. By faith, you can operate in the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit.